Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. I've missed you. This is episode 19, King Yurik. Over the last few episodes, we've been pretty tied up in imperial politics, with the coup of Majorian and Rissimer, and the follow-up coup of just Rissimer alone taking up most of the narrative, which is understandable. But this podcast was supposed to be about the people and nations that replaced the Roman Empire in the West, and here we are nearly 20 episodes in and the old eagle still is flying. That is not going to change today. Today, though, we will be talking more about the folks we began the whole thing with, the Visigoths. They've been around in one way or another from the beginning, and their time to shine is coming. Since 418, the Visigoths had been federates of the empire. They fought in its army, they received subsidies from the treasury, were given lodging and maybe even land to farm for themselves. Visigothic kings were first and foremost military leaders who lived within the imperial hierarchy alongside noble Roman neighbors. It wasn't always a comfortable relationship. For much of Aetius's tenure, Gothic uprisings were an almost annual tradition, as the Germans sought to wring more privileges, more land, greater access to trade, higher pay, out of Ravenna. Ravenna, and more immediately and importantly, the local aristocracy, was often prepared to make those concessions, because the Goths' military muscle helped keep them safe from other threats, including unofficial barbarians, and of course the ever-present threat of common people. There were so many more of them, you see. Through those actions, the Visigoths had gradually expanded their territory from a relatively narrow strip along the Garonne Valley, from Toulouse to Bordeaux, out to a healthy chunk of southwestern Gaul. The territory fluctuated, but the general trend had been expansion of Gothic influence and increased prestige for the Gothic king. It's easy to see this as coming at the expense of Roman power, and that's partly right if we think of Roman power as only originating in the courts of Italy. But the Roman power that was important to most people and had day-to-day -day relevance was the power of the local Gallo-Roman aristocracy, the men who owned the land and ran the churches of Gaul. Through a process that was ongoing throughout the empire, this class of men had become increasingly localized. So where once the great men of the empire controlled portfolios of land in multiple provinces, holdings had become less and less spread out, and so the scope of the nobility's interests became narrower and more parochial. There was now an Italian nobility, a long-suffering Spanish nobility, and a Gallic nobility. And the Gallic nobility was perfectly willing to work with the Visigoths to maintain some semblance of order, as it became ever more clear that Italy wasn't really up to the job anymore. This was a fruitful partnership for the Visigoths, as the Gallics could help cool things down when the imperial court became too annoyed by Gothic antics. Not that the imperial court could do much to influence the Gothic action at this point anyway, but all through the chaos that we've talked about, wars with the Vandals and Huns and the various civil wars and rebellions, the Visigoths could make a claim to be working in the interest or at the behest of the empire, even if their interpretation of imperial interest might be a bit idiosyncratic at times. And through it all, they remained officially a federate force within the structure of the empire an unruly child, but still a member of the family. That began to change in the 460s. 
Majorian had led a pretty thorough smackdown on the Visigoths under Theodoric II and forced them to give up territories in Hispania and Septimania, which is essentially the coastal zone between Barcelona and the mouth of the Rhone. But Rissimer's coup and the rebellion of Aegidius against Rissimer reversed that situation. The court of Toulouse supported Rissimer and Libius Severus in hope of winning concessions, and in the resulting chaos, the Goths entered Narbonne. Aegidius defeated the Visigoths at Orléans and bought himself some time, but his death in 465 offered an opportunity for revenge, and the Germans pushed Aegidius's associated Franks back to the Loire. Gaul in the 460s was the place to be if you were a fan of uncertainty and violence. In 466, King Theodoric II was murdered by his younger brother, Euric. He had been king of the Visigoths for 13 years, after having murdered his older brother for the crown, Sic Biscitus Disintegrat. Euric's fratricide was a naked power grab, and expansion of the Visigothic regnum was just a logical extension of his mindset. He was encouraged by the weakness at the Roman center to take it further than his predecessors had. Gothic ambassadors were sent out to the Suevi, the Vandals, and the Burgundians, seeking to make peace and alliances. That on its own would have seemed threatening to the Romans, even without knowing the content of the proposals. And when the eastern invasion fleet approached Carthage, which we talked about last time, the Visigoth ambassadors departed in a hurry, which maybe suggests they were not wholly innocent of skullduggery. To back up his ambitions, Euric also had control of an army that had become powerful and hardened by years of constant war. It was so strong, in fact, that Roman officers, rather than recruiting from it, were offering their services to the king, essentially abrogating their responsibility to Rome in order to serve his more successful force. That army maintained and improved itself by fighting with rebels and usurpers for territory in Gaul and in Spain against the Suevi. By the time Euric took the throne, the territory he controlled was vastly larger than the territory specified in any treaty with Rome, and legally speaking the Visigoths were squatting on that extra land, but that would change. Whether Euric consciously set out to create a new and completely independent kingdom is up for debate. My guiding light in all things Gothic, Herwig Wolfram, is quite adamant that from the moment he took the throne, Euric was operating outside the framework of the empire, and was operating with this specific goal of forming a new polity in his territories. More recent scholars, like Andrew Gillett and Guy Halsell, contend that while Euric was certainly motivated to improve his position at every opportunity, he was still very careful to maintain an alignment with the Gallo-Roman aristocracy, if not the emperor himself, because they were fulfilling important administrative roles inside Euric's kingdom. It is fairly obvious, though, that the emperor did not trust the new Visigothic king. By the way, I am conscious that I occasionally will say things like the emperor was weak, and that it's not necessarily clear what that means in practical terms. I think that we in the modern quote-unquote West have an image that if a president or prime minister is weak, that might mean that other world leaders don't particularly respect them, that they might get pushback from Congress or Parliament, but all of the departments of the government will still carry out his instructions, as will the Joint Chiefs of Staff and so on, and a summons from a president or prime minister would still require a response. 
Let's compare that kind of situation with that of the last few Roman emperors vis-a-vis the barbarian kings, which had set up their various strongholds around the empire. Those kings technically held their positions by agreement with the emperor, but in real practice they could do whatever they wanted, and could only be stopped by force. They could choose to dismiss the emperor's command, and often did. The emperor's command had, from the beginning, been backed by the threat of force, but at this point that threat was substantially reduced, especially since in the barbarian kingdoms, the only real tools available to back up authority were the armies of the barbarian kings, and their loyalties were quite clear. The emperor couldn't guarantee his instructions would be carried out pretty much anywhere. He couldn't rely on his joint chiefs, or his magister's militum in this case, and a summons might very well be ignored. It was a problem. Anthemius was well aware of the danger that Euric posed, but he had barely enough reliable men to fend off the hostility of Rissimer, plus he was initially distracted by the invasion of Africa that we talked about last time. So instead he worked diplomatically, to build an anti-Goth coalition to surround Euric and prevent the threat from growing. In the southeast, the occasionally reliable Burgundians agreed, while the north was held by Aegidius's son Syagrius and another commander named Paulus in Soissons. The north was much more willing to work with Anthemius than they had been with Libius Severus and could be relied on to counter Gothic aggression. There may have also been agreements between the Spanish Suevi and their Roman neighbors along these kind of lines as well. Around 468 or 69, a new player arrived on the board, in the person of the mysterious Riothamus. Riothamus came from Britain, which had been out of direct imperial protection for almost 60 years by now. Who he was, or what motivated him, are not entirely clear. He may have been a loser in British politics, looking to carve out a place for himself in the chaos of Gaul. We're told that he brought with him a force of 12,000 men into Armorica, that being northwest Gaul, including Brittany. He probably didn't have that many men, but we can assume from events that it was a sizable force that crossed the channel. Anthemius, on the lookout for any advantage over Euric, offered him and his men a foetus right away. Whoever Riothamus and his army were, they seemed to have been a trigger for what happened next. Maybe. It began with the arrest and trial of a man called Arvandus. Arvandus was a Gallo-Roman of apparently not very distinguished birth, who rose through the civil service and was eventually appointed Praetorian Prefect of Gaul. Twice, actually. Once by Libius Severus, so, you know, by Rissimer, and once by Anthemius, so probably still by Rissimer. For unknown reasons, he was not at all popular in the province during his second term, and in 469, just a year or so after the appointment, he was arrested and hauled off to Rome on charges of treason. The accusation was that he had sent a letter to Euric, urging the new king not to make an alliance with the Greek emperor, meaning Anthemius, and instead to attack the Britons in the north. Arvandus argued in his letter that, Gaul should be divided between the Visigoths and the Burgundians, rather than submit themselves to rule by the unworthy Anthemius. Arvandus' trial in Rome should have been presided over by the ubiquitous Sidonius Apollinaris. He had been made urban prefect of the city after delivering a panegyric in honor of Anthemius, and the administration of justice was in his remit. 
But Sidonius was well acquainted and friendly with Arvandus, and recused himself from the trial. Arvandus was found guilty, and stripped of his rank and titles, and sent into exile. That he wasn't executed is attributed by many to Sidonius's intercession on behalf of a friend. Now, I usually try not to spend too much time on the historical debates around events, partly because they're often centered on trivial issues that would only make the narrative more confusing, and there's plenty of that as it is, and partly just to keep things moving. The paucity of sources means that competing theories about all kinds of things are all over the place, and we would never get anywhere if I went into all of them. But in the case of Arvandus, the gulf between interpretations is so wide, I feel the need to get into it. The traditional interpretation is that Arvandus had betrayed the emperor, and more directly, he had betrayed Riothamus. Since, as prefect of Gaul, Arvandus would have had a formal agreement with Riothamus and a working relationship, and that he hoped to divide the empire and take the purple for himself. The example of Avidas suggested that the support of the Visigoths could make the difference in such a venture. Herwig Wolfram, in his epic History of the Goths, directly asserts that, quote, those that Arvandus designated the enemy of the Goths were the first to suffer defeat, end quote. So much is made of the betrayal aspect of that story, that personal betrayal, that the story of Riothamus and Arvandus has been put forward as the historical source for the story of King Arthur and his traitorous nephew Mordred, which is frankly kind of a bizarre stretch and does not come from Professor Wolfram, just to be clear. But the more recent scholarship, again summarized by Guy Halsell, points out some holes in that interpretation. First, a lot depends on the gap between the arrest of Arvandus and the actual battle that eventually did take place between Uruk and Riothamus. Arvandus was arrested and tried in 469, while the battle is dated anywhere between then and 471. If it's later, as it is in the more modern view, then the connection between the letter and the battle seems like it would be pretty weak. Second, Arvandus's letter, as reported, did not actually mention Riothamus by name. Riothamus may not have even been in Armorica yet when Arvandus was arrested. Third, there's no clear evidence that Uruk wanted anything to do with the plan, or even that he received the letter. The letter wasn't actually produced at the trial. Arvandus' secretary testified that he had dictated it to him, which would be pretty sloppy plotting to my mind. Lastly, most of Arvandus' accusers came from one tribe of the Gallo-Roman nobility, and we'd already heard that the prefect was unpopular. It's entirely possible the treason charge was invented to settle a dispute between the magnates and get the unpopular prefect out of the way. Now, I am not a professional historian, as I hope I have made clear, and I can only cower in awe and terror at the depth of Professor Wolfram's scholarship, but I personally have to go with the more recent interpretation on this one. But that still leaves the question. Why did the war break out at all? Whether Europe consciously sought to break out of the Roman cage, or whether it was one of those forces and trends things that are so popular among historians these days, the end result would be the same. The interpretation that seems most plausible to me is that Uruk saw the agreement between Riothamus and the Romans as part of the encirclement strategy that it was, that he saw it as a prelude to action being taken against him to take back some of the territory that he held, and so decided to take preventative measures and attack the most immediate threat, that being Riothamus, 
Arvandus's involvement was insignificant to my mind. Again, not a professional historian, but that's how I put it together in my mind. The battle between Eurex Visigoths and Riothamus's army at Dale, sometime between 469 and 471, was a direct attack on an ally of the Roman Emperor. It was also a crushing defeat for Riothamus, so much so that his army completely disintegrated and the survivors sought refuge with the Burgundians. But now the war was on. Eurek's influence was pushed northward until it was stopped by the combination of Paulus of Soissons and Hilderic's army of Franks. The Gothic advance continued on all fronts from 470 onward. The Romans offered stiff resistance in the Auvergne, led by their new prefect, named Ecdysius, who was the son of the ex-emperor Avitus, and by Sidonius Apollinaris, who was made Bishop of Clermont in 470. Together they spread an ideology that identified resistance to Gothic domination and defense of the Catholic faith as one and the same. Barbarian was still synonymous with heretic, and the survival of the true church in the face of Arian aggression became the rallying cry. That, just to back up for a second, is Arian, A-R-I-A-N, meaning the heresy that the Germanic tribes were generally converted to. The traditional view and the view of the ancient historians had been that instability at the top led to Eurek's abrogation of the foetus between Goth and Roman, as emperors began to be set up and toppled with alarming regularity. But honestly, I'm not sure that's borne out by the timeline. Majorian was emperor for four years, Libius Severus was emperor for four years, and Themius would be emperor for five. Now, that's not exactly year of five emperors kind of instability. Four years took just as long to go by then as it does now, and I think we all know that that can seem like an eternity. But it was clear that the Empire could do little to stop Yurik from doing what he wanted, and when it began to look like that might change, as anti-Gothic coalitions were being knitted together, he took steps to ensure his own freedom of action. In real terms, that anti-Gothic coalition was never going to be enough to contain the Goths. The coordination was lacking, both because of poor communication and a general lack of energy. Against the Visigoths, who had by far the most powerful military force in the West at this point, it's hard to imagine such a ramshackle alliance having much success. But that kind of hindsight was not available to Yurik, who perceived a threat and acted on it. When the African adventure failed, the coalition could do nothing at all to stop Yurik from starting a new war in Spain against the Suevi, and then against what little remained of Roman power there, which by this point was being exercised on a city-by-city basis. It took very little time for Tarragona, Pamplona, and Zaragoza to all fall to Yurik's forces, and so the last meaningful Roman presence in the peninsula was extinguished. Meanwhile, victory over Riothamus had put Tours and Bourges in Yurik's hands, and almost the whole length of the Loire now formed his northern border. All of this feels like it cries out for a map, and I think I promised one on the last episode, too. I will try to make both things happen in the very near future. The image of Germanic invaders overwhelming old Roman strongholds as the empire crumbled has fallen out of favor with most historians, and in most cases that's true. But in Spain and the Auvergne, that image was most likely perfectly accurate for many settlements and many people. 
The popular image of Barbarian in the Conan or Dungeons and Dragons mode, being bare-chested, dressed in skins, and so forth, is mostly wrong. I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but it's worth belaboring. The Visigoths had lived inside the Roman Empire for nearly a hundred years. Roman culture and Germanic culture had been blending even before that through the mechanisms of German service in the Roman armies as well as trade. The armies of the Visigoths would have looked mostly similar to the armies that defended against the Visigoths. At the core of the Visigothic force, though, remained the mounted spearman, who was the elite soldier and king's retinue. More and more Roman soldiers joined the Gothic armies as the time went on as well. The law that success attracts success has been active through all of human history. In 471, the focus of fighting was in the south and east of Uruk's domain. Clermont was under siege, where Sidonius did his best to keep spirits up, and Uruk's forces also struck south toward Arles. Anthemius took the opportunity presented by a momentary easing of tensions between himself and Rissimer, and dispatched an Italian army to defend Arles. The army, led by his son, was soundly beaten by the Visigoths. Anthemius's son died in the fighting. Arles, though, still held out, as would Clermont, for a few years longer. But time was up for Anthemius. His defeated expeditionary force had been the only thing keeping the hostility of Rissimer at bay, and so the old leopard pounced. His supporters battled the emperors in street brawls, and Anthemius was forced to feign illness and take sanctuary in St. Peter's Basilica. He was supported by the Senate and the general populace of Rome, but Rissimer commanded the loyalty of most of the army. Most of that army, if not all, by now, was made up of hired barbarian auxiliaries, and among those units was one commanded by a man called Odoacer, who we've met before, back in episode 13. St. Severinus prophesied great things for him, and we shall see. From Constantinople, Leo tried to defuse the situation. He sent Olibrius to mediate. Wait, Olibrius, Olibrius? The Olibrius that had been the alternate candidate to Anthemius? That Olibrius? The one who's really friendly with Geyseric the Vandal? Yeah, that Olibrius. The story is that when Olibrius arrived in Italy, his belongings were searched by Rissimer's men. They found a sealed letter from Leo to Anthemius and brought it to Rissimer. The letter instructed Anthemius to kill both Rissimer and Olibrius and be rid of two problems at the same time. Rissimer showed this letter to Olibrius, whose feelings were a little hurt. Rissimer then formally deposed Anthemius, and his army acclaimed Olibrius as the new emperor. Anthemius, though, of course, remained holed up in Rome, and Rissimer's army besieged the city. After five months, the army broke through and divided the city, cutting the river ports off from the parts still controlled by Anthemius. Knowing that starvation would surely follow, Anthemius disguised himself and slipped out of town. He made it as far as the church of Santa Maria Trastevere, where he was recognized, captured, and beheaded, either by Rissimer himself or by his nephew Gundabad. It was the 11th of July, 472, and Themius had been emperor for five very stressful years. No, I think that Olibrius and Rissimer made a private deal, and then concocted the letter story to provide themselves some moral cover for overthrowing Anthemius. Anthemius had done his best, and he certainly wasn't a stupid or incompetent man, but he simply didn't have the cards to play, 
and every time he tried to go for the big play, things came out against him. It's really just too bad. Alibrius looked all set up to be another puppet of Rissimer. The army was the only significant power base left in Italy, and Rissimer was con in control of it, so QED. Italy and Provence, though, was all that Rissimer could reasonably claim at this point. Paulus and Syagrius remained Roman by their own proclamation, but their armies were mostly made up of Franks, and they were so far away. Effective control by the center was pretty much impossible now. There still remained a strong Roman identity throughout Gaul, though. Probably in Spain, too, though the sources are scarcer. Sidonius and his fellow nobles scrambled to pull together defenses on their own denarii to resist the Visigoth aggression, and under the competent command of Avidus's son, Actisius, they managed to keep Clermont and a large part of the Auvergne out of Uric's hands for quite a while. As long as the Visigoths had functioned within the empire as partners with their own identity, Sidonius and men like him had been perfectly happy to have them as neighbors. Remember, he had written that rather appealing description of Theodoric II. Now that Theodoric's brother was clearly aiming at a separate kingdom, not a kingdom inside the empire, but a Gothic kingdom, a line had been crossed. Sidonius and his compatriots fought hard to stay out of such a kingdom and to remain Roman. The Roman Empire might have lost political power, but the Roman identity remained strong. So what about that Visigothic kingdom? It now covered a massive land area, bounded by the Loire in the north, the Rhone in the east, with exceptions, and extending down across the Pyrenees and indeed down to the Pyriankles to encompass most of the Iberian Peninsula, though the northwest remains stubbornly out of reach. I'm sorry, I believe I promised not to do the Pyriankles joke again, especially since it isn't even mine, but I am not to be trusted when it comes to dad humor. The Spanish lands were really just hinterland for Yurik, though, a source of pillage and a place to keep his soldiers busy, trained, and rewarded. The real core was Gallia, and in 473 both Arles and Marseille fell to him. The Roman prefecture had been divided into eight civitas, each centered on a city, and now Yurik held seven of them. Only Clermont remained, strategically a bit of a problem, as it sat like a wedge on the middle Rhone, a potential route for Burgundian invasion from the east. Yurik wouldn't have to worry about it for too much longer, though. In the meantime, Yurik set up his administration. He divided the country and appointed local administrators, most of them former Roman officials and commanders. The highest ranking of these held the Roman title Dux, which had been a military commander of an area of the empire and would become the word Duke. Lower down on the scale were the Comes, Counts, also mostly Roman. The Dux of Hispania was a Roman named Vincentius. The Dux of Aquitaine was named Victorius. These men apparently came over to the Visigoths with most of their staff intact, and so the Roman style of administration was at least partly preserved. I'm going to talk in more detail about the kingdom of the Visigoths in a later episode. Next time, though, I'm going to move us east again. The last time we really heard anything about Pannonia was in Attila the Hun's day, but since the scourge of God dropped dead, things have been a happening on the plains of Hungary. And so we will talk about Huns, Gepids, and Ostrogoths. Oh my, oh my. Thank you all for listening. 
I need to let you know about my plans for the next few episodes. I have outlined the next three, which I will do my very best to get out more efficiently than I did this one. That will bring us up to the actual end of the Roman Empire in the West, which seems like a good place to end what I am calling Season 1. I am then going to take a bit of a break. How long it is will depend on how efficient I am at getting out those next three episodes. I need to catch up on reading and preparing and maybe even writing ahead a little bit, which would indeed be a wonder. Then my plan is to be back around the first week of October, around my potiversary, which is a terrible word, which is October 4th, if anyone was thinking of sending me a card or something. I will keep you filled in about all of that as I move forward, maybe on Twitter, at Dark Ages Pod, or on the Facebook page, which is the Dark Ages Podcasts, for searching purposes. Special note to a few people. Werner, thank you for reaching out. For everyone, if you have questions for me or comments or anything, you can reach me through the contact page on the website, darkagespod.com. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I get back to you pretty quickly, as I think Werner can attest. Shauna, thank you also for listening. And Claudia, it was good to catch up. I'm glad that you are enjoying this silly project that I've taken on, and good luck on the move. And thank you to everyone for listening. As far as I can figure the numbers, all of you regular listeners would just about fill up an off-Broadway theater now, and that's kind of a nice thought. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.